Good morning, good morning, El Paso Bawa Church. I hope you guys are doing well this morning. Um, I am commissioned to share some, some announcements with you this morning. And uh, pretty simple, Awana is on break. The youth group is not meeting today, we are on break. Uh, women's Bible study morning and evening are on break as well. There is one special announcement, and I'm going to uh, have Priscilla uh, share that with you in a minute. But before she does, I am reading Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for the, that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Uh, I'm going to pray and then I'm going to have Priscilla share the announcements. Uh, Father, we do thank you this morning for your love and your grace. And just the opportunity we have to gather as, as a body, as a church, as your church, to worship you and to be encouraged by the teaching of your word. And we ask that everything we do may be to bring you glory and make you famous. It's in Jesus that we pray. Amen. Priscilla. Good morning. I just wanted to remind you guys that we have one more week before VBS. So we have one more um, this next week to bring your donations. If you have signed up to bring any of the food or craft supply items, um, this is your, your chance to do that if you haven't brought it already. Um, if you'd still like to look at the list that we have out there, there are two different sets. There's one big um, board on a black background that has food items that we're looking for. Um, if anyone can help us out by bringing any of those supplies for our snacks. And then also down on the desk, there are some sheets stapled together that you can look through um, for some craft supplies. If anyone has any of that stuff laying around at home that you could bring and donate, or if you could pick up a couple of things and drop them off, it would just help us to keep our, our budget kind of, you know, under control with, with all the things that we need to buy for VBS. Um, and so if you can bring those to the church office, either during, during office hours, Tuesday through Friday, um, 9 to 2, or you can bring it next Sunday, then go ahead and take a look at those lists and bring those. Um, also, if you are available um, to help out with our carnival on Saturday, Saturday morning the 16th, um, some of you have already, have already signed up to help, but we could use some people helping set up tables and chairs or help to run some, some games or serve food, things like that. So if you're available and would like to be involved on the Saturday, um, just let me know. Thanks. Would you stand with us?
place for our King. He stands over the grave. So let praise rise high in this place for our King. He stands over Shackled me, but God. 
You may be seated. Well, good morning. Children, you guys can go to Children's Church. If I count correctly, we have both adventurers and explorers today. So if you go, you can go. Happy Illegal Secession Weekend. We we call it that in Texas. Um, All secession is generally illegal, but we're celebrating it, right? Independence. Uh, So enjoy that. Enjoy your independence. Um, And thank the Lord for it as He worked it out for us. Um, we're going to continue. This is what the message said on the screen last week, and it's actually the message this week. So uh, don't be confused. I think we changed the graphic here. Um, but we're going to continue uh, our study today and to do that, but not forget to celebrate the many blessings that we have experienced uh, here. With that in mind, uh, we have uh, some it, it's uh, not a ministry of El Paso Bible Church per se, but Melissa Kirby uh, would like to be the point person for this. We have a pregnancy center here on the west side of El Paso, right over on Sunset, and she's going to orchestrate, right? You're, you volunteered to orchestrate. I'm not, I'm not overselling this, am I, Melissa? So she's actually the point. She didn't want to do the announcement, which is understandable. Nobody wants to get up here and do that, really. Uh, but she's going to, she, there's a slip of paper. It looks like this out on the table. Am I correct still so far? Okay. That has a list of items that they need. Um, These items are in kind of short supply. So if you would like to donate towards that, there's going to be a location out in the foyer. Uh, Or if you would like to work something else out, I'm sure that Melissa would be happy to talk to you. So Melissa, wave your arms over there. That's Melissa. This is Melissa. All right. I won't have her stand up because then that's almost like doing the announcement. Um, But there she is. She's the point person for that. So we want to make that available. Uh, from today and uh, ongoing, okay, because we want to make sure that we support uh, that center as best as we are able. Uh, thank you all. Uh, for Priscilla and I just got back from Albuquerque on Friday. We spent the week at, a, at the IFCA convention there, which is always a great time, uh, a wonderful time uh, of fellowship and, and worship, truly. Uh, we, we learned there uh, of things, but mainly as a fellowship thing. But as a consequence, and I know some of y'all feel this, my introvert battery is in the red right now. It takes me about two days for every one day after something like that to really be on top of my game. So pray for me because I don't get to not be on top of my game. I'd appreciate that. It was a great time. It's hard to, isn't it weird to consider how this massive encouraging thing can also run your battery into the negative? But it does. Okay. Um, So pray for us. But thank you again for letting us go. It's always a great time. Uh, Let's pray before we begin. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. Uh, We thank you for the truth that it proclaims uh, about you, about us, about the hope that it grants us and the comfort it provides for us as those who have life simply by grace through faith in your Son. And we thank you for that, that nothing can separate us from it. And Father, we seek to honor you and glorify you as Paul tells us you are also going to be glorified in us on that day that we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, and we thank you for that opportunity. But Father, we pray your blessing on your time uh, in your word, on our time in your word today. It's in your son's name we pray, amen. All right, so if you have your Bibles open or clicked, or some of you may have Second Thessalonians memorized. I met somebody that had two people that had Second Thessalonians memorized this last week. I'm not quite that good of a Christian yet. 
I don't have it. But uh, if you're there and you can follow along in your head, do that. But 2 Thessalonians 2, 1 to 4 is where we're going to be, but we need to remember what we're doing, right? So Paul has provided encouragement already. He knows, I think, what they are discouraged by. He knows that they are disquiet. Can I say that? You know, they're, they're not at ease. They're not at peace in their life. And so before he identifies the real issue, the real cause of that, he has already provided them encouragement. He's already said to you guys, guys, we give thanks for you where you are. We give thanks all the time, and it's worthy that we do that because of who you are and how you are replicating our behavior, the behavior of Christ, and love for you and your endurance and afflictions and sufferings. We give thanks for you where you are. Something that we ought to remember, right? That God has something to give thanks for us everywhere we are. Um, and, and Paul does that. He wants to make sure that he understands what is disquieting them. <laughs> You're, you have a purpose in your affliction. There is a purpose. There is not just a purpose. There is an opportunity, an opportunity for you. Now, honestly, you know, I have trouble with people that come to me and say that to me. You have people just approach you in the, on the street and say, have I got an opportunity for you, Mr. Meyer? Yes? I thought when I, when I bought something, bought a membership to like Sam's Club or Costco, that I could just go in and buy stuff. Can you do that anymore? No, you can't. I have told the same young man that I already have what he's selling. 20 times. Every time I go into Sam's Club, sir, are you interested in blah, 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 blah. No, I'm not interested in that opportunity today. Thank you very much. I try to repeat it to him the way he says it to me. But when Paul states, this is the opportunity that you have, and it is forward-looking, and it is from God, it is his just judgment that it is right for you in his holy and righteous and perfect discernment, the exercise of his discernment, which is, remember, what his judgment is in this context, he wants to provide you with an opportunity to be worthy of reward in the kingdom. To be counted worthy, to be counted justly worthy of the kingdom and of the reward that comes to us. To be glorified in Christ and he in us when he says that. He says, in that day, Christ will be glorified in his saints. I take that to be that judgment seat of Christ experience. It is the day, that day that we are going to stand before him and he will be glorified in us. For me, that is a, prim a primary, not the primary, but a primary motivation for the decisions that I make in life. People always, when you say it's the motivation, <clears throat> some people get wound around the axle. You know what I mean? You should just do that because you love Jesus, they say. Agreed. Agreed. But loving Jesus is not living your life as a hallmark card to Jesus, right? He gave us a definition. He doesn't care if you write him a jingle. He said to his disciples, if you love me, 
Okay, three people know what it is to love Jesus. Let's try that again. If you love me, keep my commandments. So I can be glorified in you, and then you'll be glorified. I mean, it's a package, right? Yes, you should do it because you love Jesus. Significant component of loving Jesus is to do what he says. Now, the other problem that people have is they conflate loving Jesus with trusting in Jesus. That isn't correct either, is it? I have a lot of enemies in my life that I trust. What? I trust them to do me harm and not good. I trust them to blaspheme and slander my character and not do what is good for me. Now, they don't love me, and I don't love them, but I do trust them. And some of them I trust more than some people who consider themselves my friends. I would rather have a reliable enemy <laughs> than an unreliable friend. Amen? Amen. I think we're all there. You may just be shocked by the way that I said it. But you would like to be able to know what's going to happen, what you can predict with a high level of probability, what interaction is going to end up how. They're not the same. You can trust somebody that you don't love. And a lot of people with eternal life who are justified individuals have not learned to love Jesus, but they do trust Him. They're not the same. And the condition for justification is not love. It is trust. Scripture talks about believers who become enemies of Christ because of their rebellion against Him. And it also says that there are people that will stand before the judgment seat of Christ who leave with nothing in their hands and smelling of smoke, 1 Corinthians 3, as if by fire. But they're alive in Christ and in eternity with Him and in His presence forever. Our lives matter. Who we love matters. How we obey matters. And that's what Paul has presented in, the first, in chapter 1, essentially. Your afflictions are not without reason. Your afflictions are not without opportunity. Enduring them honors God and glorifies Him and will glorify Him in you in that day. So let's deal with the problem. Let's deal with the problem is what he starts with in chapter 2. This is probably, remember, the third letter that Paul wrote. Um, it's very early in the New Testament, very early, of course, in the chronology of Pauline epistles. What that means is that there is a lot of the New Testament that isn't there for reference. I can't just point somebody and say, go to this verse or go to that verse or whatever, because those verses haven't been written yet. A lot of Paul's epistles haven't been written yet. None of the Gospels have actually been written down yet by this time, as, as I read it. So he's providing them information. Remember, these are stellar folks. These are uh, exceptional, exceptional students of the Word, people who retained high levels of information and synthesized exceptional categories of information and how they were applied, but they could be, still be distressed. Paul had covered a lot. He had taught them a lot. They had grasped a lot, and they were growing in their faith. And what, remember, one of the key symptoms of growing in our faith is our willingness to engage risk for the sake of Christ. Something 
observable, measurable. I cannot see whether you are a justified person from the outside, but I can see if you are growing in your faith to some degree. But when you're growing in your faith, you do encounter more difficulties. And if we don't have the right perspective on our difficulties, and we understand the source, and we understand the opportunity, then it can create a a point of vulnerability in our lives. You have a, a point of vulnerability. This last week, the president of the university where I'm doing my doctoral work I think facetiously was inviting me to come and play in a basketball game they're going to have at this weekend of celebration. Way the heck out in Kansas City, Missouri. Like, I'm going to go there. Well, sir, I have a lot of points of vulnerability at this point in my life. This side of my body is old rubber bands and bubble gum. I don't play basketball anymore. I don't. Sorry. Because difficulties have created points of vulnerability in my body. I have to be careful. I spend a lot of time on ladders, on roofs, or whatever, but I don't do it for a ball in my hand. I engage different risks differently, yes? Because I understand my vulnerabilities. And what Paul is explaining to them at that point is this is, this is how you avoid a vulnerability in your life. But we haven't seen what it is yet. Verse 1 and 2 tells us that in chapter 2. Now we request of you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him, that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You probably grew up singing a little song if you grew up in church. This is the day, this is the day, this is the day that the Lord has made. I will rejoice and be glad in it. You ever sing that song? Do they still sing that song? Every once in a while I talk to somebody they think is ubiquitous and universal, and they're like, no, that's, that's stone square wheel territory, Pastor Josh. We've never encountered that. But y'all know the song, right? This is the day that the Lord hath made. But the Bible is not talking about, that song is talking about every day. That's this day. He's made this day. He made all the other days. And he's going to make all the other days, but that doesn't make them the day of the Lord, right? When Scripture talks about the day of the Lord, and this is a common reference throughout the Old Testament, what is being described is a day of judgment, a day of wrath. We don't have, there are lots, lots of, in the Old Testament. It was a very common topic in the prophets. Can we be clear? The day has not come. Okay. That day has not come. But he's talking to believers, right? Brethren. I want to make that clear. We're talking to the brethren at this juncture, people who believe in Jesus Christ, who are indwelled by the Holy Spirit. And he's talking to them, be clear about this, he's talking to them about the parousia of Christ. My translation calls it the coming of Christ, but I don't like to call it that because there are two events that we need to maintain 
separation in our understanding. The second coming of Christ is not the same thing as what we call the rapture or the catching up of the church. Separated chronologically by a wide period, right? They're not the same. It's better to understand it as the presence of Christ. Uh, Jacob didn't actually read the passage I asked him to read, but that, that happens sometimes. It's out of 1 Thessalonians 4 when we're talking about that the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we will join them in the air. And from that point, I'm paraphrasing, summarizing, from that point forward, we shall always be with the Lord. We shall be in His presence. For the church, that is the parousia of Christ. It is not the second coming. It is not end of revelation where, right, where Christ comes as a conquering warrior with a sword. It's when he comes for his church. And he clarifies that by saying it is our gathering together to him. So we need to keep those two things separate. The same way we need to keep the judgment seat of Christ and the great white throne separate. Roughly the same interval separates those two events. Totally different. Totally different. Everyone who shows up at the Bema has life when he gets there and he has life when he leaves. Nobody who shows up at the great white throne has life and they're all dead when they leave. Very different. This is the parousia the rapture. After that, we will always be with the Lord. He clarifies that, right? The topic is the rapture. The harpazo, if you want to be persnickety and say the rapture isn't a word in the Bible. Isn't it easier to remember rapture? If I call you up and say, hey, have you been thinking about that harpazo? <laughs> I think I'm nuts. I am nuts, but I ain't that kind of nuts. The rapture, we're going to use that word. He's talking about that topic. It's not a command, by the way. Remember, these are exceptional people who are growing in their faith in Jesus Christ. They're experiencing faithfully the afflictions that are coming to them and that they need encouragement. He does not have to pull the apostolic smackdown on them like he does with the Corinthians. You will stop that. You will put him out. I will be coming to make sure that you did that, right? Fathers, your wife probably really appreciates your booming dad voice on occasion, right? Ladies, mothers, young children, do you like the booming dad voice when it's judiciously applied? I mean, you don't want to be yelling all the time, but occasionally those little sinners need to be called to account immediately, right? Amen? All the women say amen. All the men don't. They're like, I don't know what to do here. I'm confused. I'm confused. Paul has different voices, right? When he's talking to exceptionally godly people who are faithfully replicating the pattern that was laid down by Paul, Silas, Timothy, and Jesus, he can request something of them. He does not have to command them, and that's a beautiful thing. He says, we request of you guys. We request of you that you not be easily shaken, quickly shaken. Don't let your mind get rattled. It's the idea of being sharp, just shaken. 
Don't be quickly shaken from your mind, your peace of mind that you have that allows you to engage difficulties and afflictions the way that Christ wants you to do. Don't be shaken from that rapidly. Um, No matter how it happens, no matter how it comes, we request of you with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to Him that you not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Uh, There were people putting Paul's name on things, communications, his stamp of approval, that they should not. You may not understand a, you, a spirit, but in, John uses this term, he says, test every spirit, right? He, what he's talking about, teachers, people who are communicating God's word. Don't accept somebody who, pro, who teaches you something like this. Don't take it as a message or a, a written word. Don't take it a, on a, as a letter. Anyway, it comes to you, do not accept deceptive communication that tells you that the day has come because the day has not come. The day of the Lord has not come. This should be obvious to us, but and it should have been obvious to them. That's why they had to stamp Paul's name on it. Paul, Silas, and Timothy got stamped on all this stuff. Now, this doesn't happen to me because it's not effective. I'm a nobody, right? Nobody puts my name on a letter to granted authority. But Paul was an apostle, and this happened a lot. It, was, it happened for thousands of years after the apostolic period, actually, the, what we call the pseudepigrapha. People, people all the time over the years, not all the time, but and not infrequently, enough to remember to keep bringing me all these books, and they're like, Pastor Josh, you have got to read this thing. I don't know if you've ever heard of these things called the Gnostic Gospels, but man, they tell a great story about Jesus. Those people didn't know anybody who knew anybody who knew anybody generations a thousand years before didn't know Jesus. So why are, why are you reading that? Pseudepigrapha, they put Jesus' name on some of them, or Thomas's name on others. That, that was already happening in Paul's lifetime to grant authority to this deceptive communication. He says, don't accept that. Don't be deceived by anything that's what he says in verse 3. Let no one in any way deceive you, because that's what that would be. If you receive communication that says the day of the Lord has come already and passed you by, that's deception. For it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Paul's telling them, this is not open to interpretation, right? Y'all have watched what I consider to be the non-canonical Star Wars movies, right? The ones made this century. Leave, Leave it alone, guy. But in one of them, there's a moment, right, where Yoda is in the big screen, like, focused right on him, and he says, prophecies misunderstood, maybe. Don't go Yoda on that. Paul doesn't allow that. He says, if you get teaching that says the day of the Lord has come, that's wrong. 
It's deception. It's not a mistake, right? It's malicious. Sometimes I say something that might be misinterpreted. Sometimes I say something that one of my sons is like, happened this morning. Dad, you weren't very clear on that. This is the joys of having adult children that have grown up at El Paso Bible Church. It is a joy when it's not irritating. That is not a misunderstanding. That is not misspeaking. That is not something that you could interpret differently if you just... That's not what that means to me. That's your truth, not my truth. No room for that. There's no room for that anywhere, actually, right? I mean, despite that we have a Supreme Court justice that thinks that, I think, now, all of a sudden. No room for that. There's no misunderstanding whether the day of the Lord has come. Now, you can look this up on your own. I mentioned it. You can go, and I hope that you have a concordance. You can actually get a pretty simple concordance on your phone or something that will show you this. You can go look, the day of the Lord And you can go see what the description is, and you can find that, that it is always a day of wrath. It's not a day of minor irritations. Relatively speaking. Because that's what people get excited about in the United States of America. Categorically. We look at our minor irritations and say, this has got to be the wrath of God. Don't be foolish. There's specific evidence, he says. You can look. You don't even have to take my word for it, Apostle Paul says. You can look and you can see. Let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasia comes first. Now, we've got to talk about this one because in English, apostasy means mainly one thing, doesn't it? Anybody want to take a stab what apostasy means? Okay, I'm sorry. Maybe I haven't asked enough questions that I expected a response to lately, but you, so you all forget sometimes. What does apostasy mean in English? Falling away from what specifically, John? from the faith or from true, accurate doctrine or from faithfulness to Christ. That's what apostasy means in, in English. It gets us into trouble when we do this with Greek words. Baptize. You know why they punted on baptize? Because somebody didn't want to get their head chopped off for telling a monarch family that all their children were not baptized. They didn't translate the word. They just transliterated the word. Baptizomai was a word used in a particular industry, the cloth-making industry, to turn a white cloth into a red cloth. It was not to sprinkle red Kool-Aid with your fingers on the white cloth. But it was politically inconvenient to translate that at the time. So now we have a new word in English. 
baptize. We have the word blasphemy, same thing. If I were to ask you for a quick definition of what blasphemy means, you would say something like saying something nasty about God. The word is used there in Mark chapter 3 when he's talking to the scribes about the issue of them accusing him of casting out demons by the power of Satan. And he says, all other blasphemia will be forgiven, but not a blasphemia against the Holy Spirit. In other words, he says, it's not just me that can experience blasphemy. You can slander somebody and be committing blasphemy, but it elevates it to a technical category that doesn't exist. So you shouldn't blaspheme each other, folks. Shouldn't slander each other. Been a lot of slander cast around between believers in the last few years. Blasphemy is a serious thing, whether it's against God or against humanity, especially your brothers and sisters in Christ. But apostasia is one of those um, that has developed its own English meaning, but doesn't seem, that doesn't seem to be accurate entirely for the Greek meaning. I'm going to talk about it. It was transliterated. When we say transliterate, that just means that they change the letters, but you pronounce it the same. So they just made the English letters, the ones that were close enough to the sounds of apostasia, they made it apostasy in English. So that doesn't tell us the meaning of the thing. And the problem with the word in the New Testament is it only appears twice in the noun form. So that, that makes it somewhat difficult, but the, the verb form is, is very, very common. Uh, and, and some people uh, don't like making that jump, but the verb is more common. The word aphistomy is from the same root. It's the verb that creates the noun. Right? So, walk can be a verb or a noun, right? I'm going on a walk, but what does that tell you I'm doing? Am I on a bicycle? Am I on a motorcycle? A few of us are going on a motorcycle ride today, but we're not going on a walk, are we? We're hoping not to walk, right, Jacob? Sometimes you end up walking if you go out on a motorcycle ride, but we're not trying to do that. Walk is walking. Aphistomy is, is the verb that creates the reality of the noun. It can be a little bit tricky. And we're not going to do the whole word study because I like y'all. If you do, uh, y'all don't know what a, a long word study looks like, a full lexical analysis. Looks like we're not doing that. We don't need to do that because it's not necessary. What we need to do is see what the, the kind of the normal use of the word is, okay? How Paul uses it especially because that, that's relevant. So let's, let's talk, right? We're going to see, does, does apostasia refer to legitimately only a departure from the faith or departure from doctrine, or does it talk about some other kind of departure as its normal meaning? That's what we're trying to see, okay? So you tell me. Do you agree? I didn't ask. Sometimes people will tell me, you, you need to ask that as a question, not to Declare it. Well, we declared our independence, right? And that worked out. 
Can I just declare that y'all can answer? We're just going to observe the text together. I just declared it. Is that good enough? Do we need to take a survey? Have a focus group? All right. I think you're good. Let's look. Acts 12.10 is one that's pretty relevant. This is uh, Peter's arrest, right? And you may say Peter's arrest and deliverance. Verse 10 of chapter 12 of Acts. When they had passed the first and second guard, they came from the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel apostatized from them, departed from them. What happened? Was this a doctrinal departure? Did they stop believing in the angel? And he's like Santa Claus. When you stop believing in him, he disappears. That's what all the movies tell us happens to Santa Claus, right? Y'all are all in trouble. We're not believing in Santa Claus. That's why he doesn't exist. Is that what's happening here? No. The angel was visibly with them. And when they were outside of the gates, guess what happened? He departed, physically left. That's what we call the spatial reference for the word, for the verb. It refers to how people are moving in space. It's not an intangible thing. So Acts 15, 38, y'all are going to get there faster because most of you are clicking on your phones. 1538, this is Paul's second missionary journey. You remember what happened? There was a disagreement on one of these with Barnabas and Paul, even though they were really good friends. But Paul kept insisting that they should not take him along, who had apostatized from them and Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. It's John Mark. You remember what John Mark was just a little kid when he was going along with Paul and Barnabas. And he left them. Did he stop believing in Jesus? No. He might have been stupid and made a bad decision. There's some question as to what he did and what what the reasoning for it was necessarily, but he did. He left them. There's no doubt about that. He departed their presence. Acts 19.9. A good number of these in Acts 19, or Acts, the book of Acts, excuse me. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, this is Paul at Ephesus teaching where he taught for almost three years. When some were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them. He apostatized from them. And took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. He got up and left from one location to another. A couple more. Y'all think this is long, don't you? You have no idea. Second Corinthians. Oh, I'm in First Corinthians. That won't do at all. Let's be here. Second Corinthians. 12.8. Concerning this, oh, I like this one. It's a thorn in the flesh. Concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might apostatize me. 
Paul prayed to the Lord that his thorn in the flesh would be removed from him. Now, y'all know I mess around with bees because I'm not very smart. I can take about 100 bee stings before I have a bad day these days, right? But I was doing one about two weeks ago, three weeks ago maybe, and I'm in the middle of a PhD class, and I'm, ha- I'm busier than I can be, but I go and do this bee removal, and all of a sudden I've got a mesquite thorn right in between. It had to have been right in between the muscles of my forearm, about three-quarters of an inch. I just looked down, and there it is. I needed to apostatize that sucker badly. I literally had the thorn sticking in my flesh, and immediately my two middle fingers weren't working very well. I got it out, all of it. You got to check those things, make sure they're not broken when you pull them out. My fingers were still basically paralyzed for a week. I don't know what would have happened had I not removed it from my flesh entirely. It made typing kind of difficult. I don't have an amanuensis. Any of you all have the spiritual gift of amanuensis? Scribe. You write things down for me. I might need it if I keep doing this. But I don't get smart. But here's a very telling one also. Last one we're going to look at, I promise. 1 Timothy 4.1. This is how we know, I think, how it's used. But the Spirit explicitly says that in later times, some will apostatize from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. So does it mean falling away or departure from doctrine sometimes? Yes. When does it mean that? When it says that. He departed, they will depart from the faith. They will pay attention to doctrines of demons and deceitful spirits. That's when it means what we take the English word to mean. It requires more words in Greek. You just don't say apostasy in Greek. You have to say falling away from the faith. Now, why does that matter? Everybody just shrugged their shoulders. That's okay. Oh, no, Pastor John, that seems like a waste of time to me. (laughs) It's okay. I'm a big boy. I can take it. But it's not a waste of time. When it does refer to doctrine, it's explicit in Scripture. But the vast majority of the uses of words from that root, both the verb and the the noun, it's like 80%. And you'll have to trust me on this one because I wasn't going to put you through the full lexical analysis, right? mean to physically depart from one location to another. That's the normal meaning, right? It can mean doctrinal falling away, but that is not the main meaning and the normal meaning. The reason that matters is because this is evidence for something. You're supposed to be able to look at something and go, okay, so I'm supposed to look at what this noun is referring to, and I'm supposed to be able to tell that the day of the Lord has not come. Y'all know church history? A little? A little, little bit? Even if you know this much church history, you know that in 
even the days of Jesus, but certainly in the days of Paul, apostasy was ravaging portions of the church. In fact, much of the church. That's why we have the New Testament. In fact, that's why we have this section in 2 Thessalonians saying, don't pay attention to deceit that tells you the day of the Lord has come. But how could you look at any time in the church history and go, doctrinal falling away is telling me that the day of the Lord has not come because it's not here, and then all of a sudden it appeared. Can't do it. Currently, apostasy is ravaging the church, particularly on this point of whether the day of the Lord has come or when the tribulation is going to happen or if there's a kingdom that is coming in the future. I was raised, my mom used to literally joke, this is how nerdy we were, okay? We were real nerdy. My mom was nerdier than I am. Can you all believe that? She would tell me, Josh, you know, there used to be people <laughs> that were post-millennialists. <laughs> Can you believe that? <laughs> it's ridiculous. People who look at the world and think that it's getting so much better that we're just going to make it ready for Jesus, and when it's ready for Jesus, it's going to come. That was a joke. The joke is getting a lot of traction here lately. It's behind what we understand to be going woke in the church. That we can turn the gospel into some socialist thing and create a kingdom that is then going to be prepared and ready for Jesus just to walk through the door and we can hand him the keys as if that's what the Bible describes the kingdom as. That is apostasy in the English sense of the word. You can't do that. The Bible never tells you to do that. Look forward. Live your life here, knowing that in the day that he is glorified in his saints, you'll be counted worthy of the kingdom. Doctrinal departure in the church doesn't make for a good sign for a specific event, because it's always common in the world. And more than that, he says, this is what comes first. That's weird. Because if it, that's not the rapture, the rapture's in there somewhere. The thing that we say about the rapture is that it is imminent. Do you know what imminent means? They could come at any time. That means that it is a signless event. There is nothing that we're looking for before that comes. It could come right now. Maranatha, Jesus, bring it. I always wanted to, like, when I say that, you know, I say that a lot, just in case. Maybe it'll happen when I do it. <laughs> but if we have to wait for this massive doctrinal falling away before we see that, then we have a sign. We just got to wait for the big doctrinal falling away, as if we could identify that in the current climate. That's the topic, right? That's our, it's our gathering to be with Him, to with the Lord, before the day of the Lord starts, the rapture comes. See, if we understand this verse correctly, and we don't import the English meaning of that word, and we understand the apostasia to be a physical removal from one location to another, it's not talking about those who are unfaithful to Christ, but believers in Jesus Christ who are going to meet Him in the air and be with Him forever. 
all of a sudden that makes all sorts of sense. And that's why I'm mean, and I don't consider the pre-tribulational rapture to be optional. This is a slam dunk verse, in my opinion, in my truth, which I think is the truth. Because I don't have the pridefulness and the hatefulness to stand up here and tell you my opinions all the time. I've been preaching in churches occasionally, at least, part-time at least, for nearly 20 years, and I could not have done that if I didn't believe that we could understand the truth from Scripture. Not that I've always done it perfectly. Haven't always understood it perfectly. But this one is pretty clear to me if you actually do the work, which I did, which y'all saw a little bit of. We don't want to make the rapture into a sign event when it is a signless event. It needs to, Scripture talks about it as being imminent. And the rapture comes before the day of the Lord. He's saying, if you're seeing events on the earth from person to person, the day of the Lord has not come. How do you know the day of the Lord has not come, folks? Because you're sitting here listening to Pastor Josh instead of being in the presence of Jesus forever. Glorying and being glorified in Him. The day of the Lord can't happen until the physical departure of the church when we're gathered together with the Lord. Now, there's more evidence here that you could see that is going to be visible on this earth he says, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction or perdition. That's what perdition means. Who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself as being God. Now, in, in Paul's day, he, he, could, uh, he couldn't stop. I, I think if he was telling this to us, he could have just stopped that there will be somebody seated in the temple of God, right? Right? Y'all do know that there is no temple on the earth right now to Yahweh, right? Okay. At least nod your head, folks. There's no temple on the Temple Mount. There's a mosque there. No one can sit there and claim and display himself as being God. No one can do that. But the temple was still standing when 2 Thessalonians was written. So he said, in more detail, that's what's going to happen. What I take to be the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness, the son of perdition, will seat himself there and exalt himself, not only above God, but of everyone's object of worship, every idol. It's impossible right now, right? Right? It's like when we read in Zechariah that Jesus' feet touched the Mount of Olives, which is a real mountain, by the way, that they actually grow olives on it. 
And it splits in two and moves in opposite directions, and people wonder if Jesus has come back somehow. Well, go look at the Mount of Olives. If it's in one piece, he's still up there and not here. The day of the Lord has not come because no one can exalt himself in a temple that isn't on the earth. Now, this may seem academic to you, and and you guys are sharp, but you're going to run into people that will try to disquiet you. They do it to me, actually. They, they do it to me because they come and they say, Pastor Josh, what about, what about Gog and Magog? Have you not been watching the news? I watch the news, folks, but I do what I tell you to do. I don't watch it 24-7. I watch about 15 or 20 minutes and realize that they begin repeating themselves at that point. They are asking usually, almost always, almost always about events that are taking place in the tribulation. Always. And they want me to say, this is that. Or they're trying to say, this is that. Here's the one thing I know, and I do think it's a slam dunk. If you're asking me, is it the tribulation right now? And you're asking me if what you saw on the news sitting on your couch in your house as a believer in Jesus Christ is the tribulation, the answer is no. It's not. It shouldn't surprise us that the world kind of sucks because it's broken. That's not new. It's new to you. It's new to me. But if 70 A.D. wasn't the tribulation, certainly nothing we're experiencing today is, and it wasn't. You'll know what happened in 70 A.D., right? You should know that date, destruction of the temple. That's why we can look and say the day has not come because there's nobody, no temple to sit in and exalt yourself in. If you really feel like some hard reading, read the historical accounts of how that was done. Can't be that. Because you're right here sitting in these pews. You haven't physically departed yet. You haven't left. Gone to your new location. So I'm going to make the same request of you. Don't be quickly disturbed. Don't be quickly shaken in your mind. Because nothing of that nature, the day does not come while we're here. We're looking for for the blessed hope of Jesus Christ from that point forward to be with him forever. So when you encounter troubles in the world, when you encounter afflictions in the world, Maybe some of you have even once or twice been actually persecuted, but that's pretty rare. What does that allow you to do? Okay, I'll start over. Knowing that the next prophetic event that is relevant in your life 
is that you will be physically removed to the presence of Jesus Christ, what Scripture calls the blessed hope. When you encounter trials, afflictions, and maybe even one day we'll have the the joyful event of being able to actually suffer persecution for the sake of the name of the Lord Jesus Christ like the apostles did early in Acts. What do you see it as? Opportunity to be counted worthy. Not to run around like Chicken Little or to buy your, that's all they've got. All they got is Chicken Little books in the Bible bookstores now. The sky is falling and it's falling on you. Steadfast. Sanctified. <laughs> Stubbornness in your sanctified state, right? That's all steadfastness is. Refusing to be moved from your hope in Jesus Christ and being able to see the opportunity that suffering provides. I request that you not be easily moved from that hope. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your word. We thank you for the promises that it contains. We thank you that we can look with hopefulness to our hope, to this time that we will be with you forever. We're caught up into the air. We thank you for it. We thank you that it clarifies our vision of the events around us and our responsibility in them. We love you, and we thank you for this life that we have to live for you. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and we'll dismiss right now?